Charles here. Welcome to the 72nd episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, the season four finale. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This podcast episode was recorded on the sacred lands of the indigenous people of the Kikapu, Peoria, Kaskaskia, and Miami. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Brian Gaines as a part of the big rhetorical podcast, Keystone Perspectives series. But, you know, I think if we can leverage these uh, technologies that are at our disposal for, for the greater good, such as blockchain voting, where is verified? I think things like this, the voter fraud claims, I think this would this would answer that question once and for all. We have to look backwards in order to look forward. And if we look back and if we can trace these divergent lineages and we see where they converge, especially answering the question of, you know, the technological historiography question, then we can find out where, where we could have been better and try to keep that from happening again on a much greater scale. You'll hear more from Brian in a bit. But first, I want to share with you some news about the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival 2021. This year, our theme is contending with misinformation in the classroom and in the community. And we are thrilled to announce that our keynote for the carnival is Dr. Renee Hobbs, Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Media Education Lab at the Harrington School of Communication and Media at the University of Rhode Island. I am so delighted to be collaborating with Dr. Hobbs on this project and all the other podcasts and podcasters too. We have built an exceptional lineup this year. Make sure to check out our Twitter feed and Facebook page for more information about podcast participants and our keynote throughout the summer. Before we move into the interview with Dr. Gaines, I want to share with you some more news about a new feature beginning in Season 5, which starts later this year. Are you interested in contributing to the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The Big Rhetorical Podcast is now offering a new way to contribute to the podcast and receive credit for a digital publication through the Big Rhetorical Podcast Reviews section. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Reviews section is a new, innovative way for scholars in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication as well as the Big Rhetorical Podcast listeners to contribute to the conversations in these areas through a digital publication. Did you read a book that you really enjoyed? Perhaps a new article has influenced your pedagogy. Did you attend a concert or art exhibit that introduced you to new avenues for your research and scholarship? The Big Rhetorical Podcast Reviews section includes reviews of books, articles, special issues, conferences and symposia, films, television shows, concerts, art installations and exhibits, podcasts, events that are directly or tangentially related to rhetoric, composition, and technical communication. Consider this a short list. 
If you have something you want to review, reach out to us. We want to hear your idea. Reviews should be approximately 750 to 1,000 words. Reviews will be recorded and submitted to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Reviews should be approximately 750 to 1,000 words. Reviews will be recorded and submitted to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com to be included as a part of upcoming episodes. If you want to chat before working on your review, reach out. You can email us or use the submission form on our website. All submissions will be acknowledged. We prefer MP3 files, if possible, but are open to submissions in other formats, if necessary. For more information on the Big Rhetorical Podcast Reviews section, reach out to the Big Rhetorical Podcast at gmail.com or submit a form at our website. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Brian Gaines as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast series. This unique series of episodes is specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of distinguished scholars and professionals working in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. Scholars featured as a part of the Keystone Perspectives, a capstone podcast series are people who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. I first met Dr. Brian Gaines when he was a mentor at the GRN at Computers and Writing Conference at Michigan State University in 2019. We both served as Computers and Composition Digital Fellows, albeit in different years which led us to collaborate as a part of a much larger team for a manuscript for computers and composition. It was there that I first encountered Brian's writing and noticed we are very different writers and academics. And I knew I wanted to talk to him. Moreover, after featuring Dr. Samantha Blackman and the editors of The Best of Rhetoric and Composition as the previous two Keystone Perspectives series, podcasts, I wanted to choose someone earlier in their career, someone pre-tenure for this third installment. So I thought of Dr. Gaines. Furthermore, one critique, and it might just be my own, of this podcast is that we don't get super theory heavy during our interviews. And I knew Brian would push us, me, and our discussion in those directions. Dr. Brian Gaines is a designer, writer, and the visiting assistant professor of rhetoric and professional writing at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, where he teaches a variety of media and professional and technical writing courses, including writing and digital media. Prior to coming to Virginia Tech, Brian graduated from Clemson University's Interdisciplinary Rhetorics, Communication, and Information Design PhD program, where he was the last graduate student of the bad boy of rhetoric, Victor Vitanza. His research interests reside at the nexus of visual rhetoric, surveillance studies, detournment, and hauntology. His work has appeared in text shop experiments, Sweetland DRC and Parlor Press, among others. 
future projects for Brian include guest editing the Culture Jam issue of Text Shop Experiments, a forthcoming article on MySpace, Facebook, and Hauntology, and numerous design projects. Brian has presented his research both nationally and globally. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Brian Gaines. Tell me, what's your name, uh, your title, your uh, institution, your role there, and what do you do? Well, I'm Brian Gaines. I'm the visiting assistant professor of rhetoric and professional writing at Virginia Tech. There's there's only one of me. Uh, uh, currently, I'm teaching a lot of classes that deal with writing and digital media. Uh, I've taught classes on uh, content strategy. Uh, I've taught graphic design classes. I have taught uh, creating user documentation, which is just a very specific subset of technical writing, which I've also taught there. And um, yeah, I'm just kind of, uh, along with one or two other people uh, within the department, are just kind of the, the resident kind of tech geeks that, that kind of nerd out on like the philosophical and rhetorical aspects of technology. And uh, this is my second year there. Second year in Blacksburg, then. Yeah. Uh, how is life in Blacksburg? Uh, well, I left Blacksburg uh, during the height of the pandemic. Oh, okay. okay. I live in Roanoke, which is about 30 miles away or so. Uh, one, just to escape the, the housing crisis that Blacksburg is undergoing. Uh, Virginia Tech is rapidly expanding, and um, their freshman class the first year I taught there was uh, the largest in history and the second largest in history was the one this previous fall so housing was coming at a premium uh, I like to go out sometimes and it's hard to it's hard to be out enjoying yourself you know PG-13 fun with uh, you run into some of your students you know so from from an ethos standpoint I thought getting out of town would be a, a good option and uh plus uh roanoke's just it's a it's a weird city it's gritty it's gentrifying but it has this vibrancy at the same time you can get uh lots of different like cuisines there's a major art museum here uh other things like that i actually live between three museums they're all walking distance from here and just the history of the town is just something interesting so so I relocated, and I live in a converted warehouse. Well, that's pretty cool. I was noticing the background. I was like, that's a pretty cool lofties in there. Um, yeah, very minimal, very uh, prison block-esque. <laughs> the original 115-year-old uh, oh. floors, and, and everything's original, except for oh, the cool. abandoned track lighting. It's like a like a... Oz 2021 episode up here with the prison blocking and stuff. <laughs> Definitely. Um, let's talk about where you're from. Are you from Virginia? No, I'm originally from a small town called Anderson, South Carolina, which is right outside of Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, you know, my my mom's family settled in South Carolina 
from Connecticut in the 1630s in the Charleston area, and we just kind of uh, kind of dissipated from there. Um, I guess that would make me like a seventh generation South Carolinian. And prior to that, uh, we can trace our family all the way back to France, England, and Wales. So that's that's really cool. Um, I'm a blood descendant of Francis Marion. Like Francis Marion University? Yeah, the uh, the Revolutionary War General. Uh, Some of my family helped found the College of Charleston. So we are uh, we are uh, very much ingrained in the history and present day of South Carolina. That's super cool. And be prouder. Yeah, that's really cool. I talk to a lot of folks about from South Carolina, not like the University of South Carolina, but well, yeah, I guess folks from the University of South Carolina, too. <laughs> but uh, I talk to a lot of folks from South Carolina, so I feel like I um like from afar, like I'm I'm ingrained in the culture in some weird way. Not in, not really, but you know, that's how I feel. Um so <laughs> so did you come from a big family in Greenville? What did your mom do? Uh my mom was a food service executive. Uh, my parents divorced when I was really young. My stepfather uh, he worked in um chemical industry for a West, well, a West German company when I was a child. Now it's a German company. They're both retired. Uh, I have, I have an older brother who, who is a dropout of the university of South Carolina. Um, he, he's a, um, he works for United parcel service. He's been there for quite some time. And uh, there's a huge age difference from us. I was in elementary school. He was in college, so we're not particularly close. Um, my maternal grandparents I never met. My uh, maternal grandfather was actually born in 1885, so I never. Oh. Yeah, my mom. My mom comes from an extremely large family because they were one of the last generations of what you call the, I guess, gentleman farmer type. What's a gentleman farmer type? It's kind of like uh, someone that plants and runs business, and you know, okay. not quite an aristocrat, but not quite like a sharecropper somewhere. Okay. In- that's the way I understand it. So like an assistant professor. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> no, but she was uh, one of the last of 14. Uh, my grandfather was actually 61 when she was born. My mother is now 74. So it's you know, a rather large family. Um, many of her siblings had adult children by the time she was born in the 40s. And uh, my stepfather, uh, he was born in northeast Georgia in the 30s and uh, came over to South Carolina as a teenager. And uh, interesting fact, uh, my stepfather and my mom are born on the same day, exactly 10 years apart, which is kind of bizarre. And yeah. Really interesting. Kind of is bizarre. Let's talk about your your career in academia. So uh, I told I mentioned I talked to a ton of folks from South Carolina. I've never talked to anyone from Anderson University. Uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about Anderson University and how you wound up majoring in art and graphic design. Is that a passion? Was it make practical sense for what did you wanted to do? Is it just something that you're good at? Stuff like that. I have always made things or have always tried to make things, have always been interested in deconstructing things and trying to put them back together. 
digging around just I just have a curiosity in the world. I actually had really no intentions of ever going to college, really. I just just wanted to do some traveling and some things and and I thought, well, you know, if I go to college, I could put off getting a real job for at least four years. So I, you know, I was like, hey, graphic design is really cool. I, I used to make flyers for friends of mine that, that were in bands and things like that when I was in high school. So, you know, I applied and um, they accepted. And, yeah, it, it was it was a formative four years. It made me hate art for a long time because it was done under such stringent and you know, compartmentalize things. Well, you must do it this way. You can't do it that way. This is not right. And that type of uh, education I found very constricting. But at the same time, it was a liberal arts education. So I was exposed to a lot of different ideas and a lot of a lot of different ways of being in the world and ways of seeing the world. And Surprisingly, a private Christian college really opened up my worldview in a lot of ways that a lot of people maybe wouldn't see from a cursory glance. So when you say you you kind of grew to hate art, you gave an explanation, right? But how has that impacted the way that you conduct yourself in a classroom or impacted your pedagogy? Well, I mean, I grew to hate art, but I fell in love with it all over again, you know, just being out in the world and when I was in the Navy creating graphics and propaganda and all these other things and and then reading about art and reading about artists and designers particularly I, I really really had a huge falling out with fine arts and really grew to appreciate the applied arts a lot more like printmaking and the graphic arts, uh, screen printing, for example, things like that. Things where you could really make art an egalitarian thing and you can promote aesthetics to a wide audience that maybe without the advent of those things would not be privy to this. Sure, we could all go look at a Jasper Johns or an Andy Warhol or whatever in a museum, but how many of us can actually afford it? And through the democratizing practice of graphic arts and being able to create series and editions, uh, in a a lot of ways, like cinema, it just brings art to the masses. And that was something that I was really in tune with, and especially the whole uh, do-it-yourself ethos behind that, Uh, making your own music. I, I dabble in music making now. I'm learning this uh, visual object programming language called Pure Data, which you can create music with. You can make generative beats. You can, you know, and if people want something badly enough, it, there is a, a means to do that. So, like, for example, I've never seen a Simon and Garfunkel t-shirt, so I went and got a screen printer a screen printing press and made a Simon and Garfunkel t-shirt one time. Um, you know, it's just, just pure creation. And, and there's a, a growing body of us within the rhetoric world. Kate Hanselek from uh, Syracuse. Uh, I was uh, privileged enough to be in an edited collection that she and Natalie Virgentino did. And they let me do the cover. 
you know, and I wrote chapter six. And um, that's so, really cool. I just wanted to jump in and say that's really cool. Like that, that's that's a good path <laughs> forward for all edited collections, right? Right, and it's you know if you're and I I'm of the opinion if you're gonna write a book, if you're gonna make a monograph or whatever, why not just get your hands into every facet of the creation of this project? And uh, Dave Blakesley at Clemson, who was uh, on my dissertation committee, has been a, a great mentor of mine. Runs his own publishing house where he does these things. And this whole uh, do-it-yourself work ethic, or really we're not doing it, no one is an island. So we could call it, as Dave basically like to say, a do-it-ourselves ethos, where we're, we're making these things happen. And, and getting back to your original question about pedagogy, I bring that into the classroom. I like to leave a lot of my assignments, especially the ones where we're creating artifacts, very open-ended because I want to see what the students come up with. I want them to explore the software or the, the processes in which creation occurs just to see where they end up. And more often than not, the results have been just mind-blowing. You mentioned quick. You mentioned you were in the Navy. Um, that's pretty cool. Um, when did you join the Navy? What was your role there? What did you do? You mentioned you made propaganda. Oh yeah, I did a, a little bit of everything in the Navy. Uh, a few years out of college, I was you know, having an undergraduate art degree. Doesn't really open a lot of doors. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Tarantino, this thing. Uh, I was working a job that. I couldn't have gotten without without an undergraduate degree. And then one day I woke up and I said, you know what? I'm going to join the Air Force just on a whim. And okay. I, I went down to the recruiting office. The Air Force recruiter wasn't there. The Navy recruiter was. Talked to him. Next thing I know, I'm taking the ASVAB, which I had taken in high school just to get out of class for most of the day. And... After I got the score back, they were they wanted me to become a nuclear engineer. I wasn't interested in that at all. And then uh, the Navy recruiter said, hey, you can be a photographer. So I was like, hey, that's really cool. I want to do that. So there was a huge waiting list. Nine months later, I was in Navy boot camp. Uh, waiting to become a photographer. And then um, there were photographers, journalists, and what they called draftsmen, which were like graphic designers in the Navy. And uh, those four job, three jobs merged into one called mass communication specialists. <coughs> so we were uh, you know, creating graphics, writing press releases. That's what I meant by propaganda. Nothing, uh, nothing bad ever happened in our press releases. It's more right. public relations and public affairs type work, uh, combat photography, humanitarian relief efforts. I was uh, I was a part of the team that documented the rescue of Captain Richard Phillips. And um, that was really a very pivotal moment in my life when I yeah. saw the power that, that the fusion of art and communication and these things, how just how vital they were to being in the world and being a part of 
things and disseminating information. And it really got me thinking about a lot of things. And then two years later, when I left the Navy, I had this whole thing. I want to help people. I want to help people. I, I was actually studying architecture on the GI Bill. And my goal was to develop a system of creating cheap, affordable housing for the growing homeless population in Southern California, where I lived, using uh, recycled and reclaimed materials. And then as wonderful, <laughs> the wonderful bureaucracy that is big government, uh, something happened and I wasn't getting paid and I wasn't getting uh, funded for my studies. So I left school and I moved back to South Carolina to try to to regain um, a sense of what I wanted to do. And that's when I decided to, to go to graduate school and study communication. You wound up at Clemson and you did your master's degree there and your PhD. I was, uh, I did a master's. Yeah. I was studying user experience. Like I was focusing on that and, and I was... <laughs> I was getting some papers signed in order to to graduate, all those nice bureaucratic forms, you know. And uh, Right. <laughs> and at the time, uh, Jan Holmovic was the associate chair of the department, and I emailed him, asked him if I could come by and uh, get these documents signed. He said, sure. And uh, he started talking to me, and uh, I was working in a – a human computer interaction lab as part of my assistantship and I was looking at possibly getting a PhD in computer science but was on the fence and uh, the professor that was running that lab and I we had a lot of philosophical differences about the nature of computation whereas I saw it as a means of mind expansion and and helping the greater good he saw it as a way to to monetize things and not to speak ill of, of a tenured professor who's no longer there, but we had a, a real difference of opinion. And uh, I was actually just going to go get a job. And I, Jan Holmovic asked me to consider the Rhetoric's Communication Information Design Program. And I said, sure. And I had, I had no intention of doing it. And then I took a job in the marketing department at a community college and over the course of that year, I was thinking, well, you know what, this might not be such a bad idea. So I, I reached out to Jan Holmovic and then uh, his wife, Cynthia Haynes, who is now the director of Clemson's RCID program, she and I took a lunch. And during the course of that lunch, I decided, hey, I'm going to give this a shot. And I expressed my interest. I went and sat in on a seminar. Victor Batanza showed up. Two days later, I went and sat in his office, and then the next thing I know, I'm I'm applying, and then and then yeah, I, I became a a PhD student um, not too long thereafter. Your dissertation, Machinic Eyes: Post Digital Aesthetic Surveillance and Resistance. I know that a lot of us have 
complex relationships with our dissertations. I know that I, I'm in the middle of finishing mine, so I know <laughs> I certainly do. Um, and I know it's been a little bit of time, but I wonder if we could revisit that that project a little bit. Um, what was that project about? What were your research questions? What were your conclusions? Um, and why is it important? Uh, I think it's important because we are we are a digital society. We are, as Gregory Gomer likes to say, electric people, you know, digital natives, whatever label you want to put onto it. We we are we are not dependent upon technology. We are integrated with technology, and it affects all of us, regardless of any other societal marker that we can place upon ourselves. We are all touched by it in some way. You and I are touched by technology through this conversation. This conversation wouldn't be happening otherwise. Writing is a technology. Uh, the, the evolution of writing into the digital, multimodal, intermedial, whatever you want to call it, is it affects all of us. And because we are integrated with technology, the digital and physical worlds tend to overlap a lot. Uh, things that would solely exist in the digital or the uncorporeal world find their ways increasingly into the corporeal physical world. I have a 3D printed Julius Caesar pen holder so you can stab him in the back. This is the result of digital technology overlapping into the physical world. And the more I started looking into it, I, can't, I kept coming across this term, the new aesthetic, the new aesthetic. What is it? Well, it's this thing that was coined by this guy named James Bridle. He's got an idea of what it is. I don't think he really understands what the word aesthetics means. He's a brilliant guy, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm just saying that he, he had a very heavy-handed definition. I started looking at his Tumblr. I started looking at what other people were writing about it. And then I just started thinking to myself, this didn't just materialize out of anywhere. It had to come from somewhere. So I started doing some digging. <coughs> and it led me back to the Italian futurists. Marinetti and those guys, Russolo. And so I started tracing how this thing came to be. And it, it made stops with, because it's an art movement and a technological movement. And LSD is one of, it's not the driving force, but it is a primary motivator because we got the, um, the counterculture and uh, the, the personal computing revolution. We got, the internet out of the birth of these things and and the new aesthetic is just kind of a and this might be a heavy-handed definition but it's kind of an overarching way to describe how we have integrated with with technologies especially digital technologies one of the things i like about bridal is his algorithmic citizenship um i guess it's a it's a theory um Algorithmic citizenship is like a new form of citizenship where your citizenship, where your allegiance and your rights are continuously questions calculated and rewritten by algorithmic processes. 
uh, based on the data they use. So I wonder, did you ever do any work with algorithmic citizenship? Uh, how does that theory play into some of the work that you've done? Oh, it plays heavily into it. Not so much for the dissertation, but in my thinking about it. Right. Uh, because your algorithmic citizenship is completely fluid, completely dynamic, and it's dependent upon so many things, such as VPNs. You know, if you think of VPN as kind of like a decentralized passport, almost like a cryptocurrency, but for for selfhood, like an ontological cryptocurrency. So yeah. you can be like Swedish and Norwegian and Dutch, and then you can be German and South African and Vietnamese. And it's a um, – and it's really kind of – just a really prescient embodiment of what the new aesthetic is because there are things like borders and money, passports, all these other things, they become completely fluid and completely dependent upon the situation. And and like Clerk, Kurt Cloninger, who, you know, I count him as a friend. He's, he's a really great guy at UNC Asheville. He, he likens it a lot to, to Freud's uncanny, uncanny valley. Because we have this, uh, it's familiar, but it's also familiar in a way that's terrifying to us. Because we can't, we can't just shed these old ways of being for new ways of being. And we're working on it. We're getting really damn close, especially with things like cryptocurrency and other other notions of that. But but within all of this digital wonderment and this overlapping. You know, there are bad actors, and that's where the surveillance part comes in. <clears throat> it's whether it's Facebook selling your data to OnCloud to sell you running shoes that you don't really need or whatever. I mean, there there are bad actors. There are government agencies at play, like the NSA, and we we've all we all know way too much about Edward Snowden and all of that mess. Actually, when I was in the Navy, I worked across the street from the NSA, and this was before smartphones were a thing. And if you're on the phone, it was like, yeah, I see an NSA guy. And anytime the word NSA was mentioned, your phone would just die. It was just the call would just end. And, and I thought, well, how much? And when I was in grad school, I was thinking about to these events, and I was like, well, how much computational power does this organization that no one's ever really heard of possess and you know what we do know about them is really scary and and like I said previously it affects all of us so it's how do we and the next part of you know the title is where all these research questions come in how do we resist that we're not we're not going to stop using the internet we're not going to get off social media even though Jaron Lanier wants us to we're not going to stop using Google, even though we know how abusive they are in their their surveillance practices. So what do we do? So my thinking is we make it very interesting for them. We make it very interesting through them, through the use of encryption, through blockchain, through steganography and other methods. Uh, you know, recalling the whole cyberpunk, cypherpunk um ethos that was driving uh, Web 1.0 in the early to mid-90s is how do we bring that back in a very meaningful way 
that lets these guys know that we mean business and that our privacy and our our collective ontologies aren't for sale. And, you know, that's one of the questions I'm still asking myself and trying to figure out to this day. And, and some people have made some really great strides towards that. But it's just going to it's going to be this plastic battle that keeps going where we push and pull. And but I will tell you this. We are in the business of creating strong arguments and being persuasive. But if you look at mathematics from a rhetorical standpoint, encryption is the strongest argument because no one can defy the rules of mathematics. Mm -hmm. There's a guy who sent a mixtape to the NSA. It is on an Arduino board with a laser cut cassette. And, and oh, Lou Otter, the guy that invented the cassette uh, tape, died yesterday. So this is oh. making all these weird connections. Yeah. So he sent this to them. Um, as of yet, to our knowledge, the NSA has not been able to crack the encryption to play the mixtape. So there's only one person in the world that knows what's on that mixtape. And it's a guy who just really loves privacy and really hates alphabet government organizations. These GameStop folks are going to crumble <laughs> our economy, and then the NSA is going to crack that code, and it's going to be the Satoshi password <laughs> to, to, to those billions of dollars of Bitcoin. Um, More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. Let's talk about the... The, the intersection um, of, of white supremacy and this um, insidious, ubiquitous digital culture. Well, I mean, a lot of a lot of groups, not just extremist groups, but extremist groups on um, both sides of the uh, political spectrum have leveraged uh, this new digital age, social media, what have you, whatever you want to call it, uh, to their advantage. Back in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, white supremacy groups such as uh, World Church of the Creator, which I don't know if they're even around anymore. They might be called the Creativity Movement. They had some of the most rhetorically sound websites out there. 
they were very persuasive, uh, you know, reaching out to think about the average uh, web user back in the mid to late 90s. It's probably a disaffected, nerdy white guy from a middle class family who who didn't know where he fit in. And then these groups come along and they're they're there. You know, and they, they, it's like an affinity group for someone who doesn't know where they fit in. So people could easily fall under, <coughs> under that spell, you know, from, from the retort, as it were. Um, Whitney Adams and I wrote and presented a paper in Romania recently about how, uh, white supremacists leverage, uh, social media under the guise of, the philosophical school of thought known as accelerationism to bring about chaos and to recruit people for what have you. And, but you know, other groups and, you know, I would never call Antifa a group because they're, they're not a group. It's a a political ideology, but people that fall under an anti-fascist ideology are are doing similar things much in a horseshoe, uh, horseshoe theory of politics they're so much alike and all these other groups you know i can't even think there's so many proud boys i think proud boys are more like male chauvinist assholes and actual white supremacists <laughs> they're bad they're bad people don't i'm not supporting any of these guys but no they're they're all leveraging the the instantaneousness i didn't say that one right the um and just the the ability to disseminate information widely. A lot of these groups are, are using that in order to recruit people to their cause, whatever it may be. Sometimes it's donating money to the the SCPA. Sometimes it's uh, calling for ethnic cleansing of peaceful ethnic cleansing, to quote Richard Spencer. Uh, so it's we. We have a responsibility when we are literally connected to everyone to to be stewards of care for people, and we have to be careful with what we say and what information we put out there and what people are allowed to say. And um, it's a very it's a very slippery slope because you know the web and digital technology. Ever since the ARPANET first was able to communicate between Stanford and MIT, coincidentally, where the first uh, the first online sale was a bag of pot, which is another story. Um, ever since we were able to do that, we have to be very considerate and very careful how we use just the power and the ability that that brings about to do good in the world. And and some people are trying to do that. More often than not, people are not. And that's something I'm also looking at. So I have a question, and this may be something that I cut out, but here we go. For me, when I, and I, and I admittedly, you know, I study privacy and policy, okay? So white supremacy is not my specialization, right? Um, but for me, it seems like um, there was an increased sentiment to studying... <clears throat> white supremacy in our digital systems that occurred in our field, in our disciplines in, in the, in 2015, 2016. Am I wrong to, to identify that time period as, you know, a, a moment of heightened 
interest in this, in this, in white supremacy. And if so, how well does the field really, um, acknowledge and study and the historiography aspect of white supremacist, white supremacy as a growing phenomenon it to me like i guess what i'm getting at and i'm rambling here is it's not emergent right it's not emergent it's something that is it's it's inherent to the infrastructure of digital technology uh I think and there was a ton there brian <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to unpack this i don't think no you're not wrong and i think people <clears throat> had a heightened sensitivity to the notion of white supremacy and extreme extremist ideologies because of Donald Trump. I felt like a lot of groups that maybe weren't in the forefront all of a sudden became illuminated in in the light of his election to the office of the president. Like the National Policy Institute, for example. I never heard of them until election night when Richard Spencer was screaming, Hail Trump, Hail our people, and people were giving the Nazi salute. He's a very dangerous person for a lot of reasons. We can talk about that later. Um, but I also think there, you know, along with that came the social justice turn and a lot of, a lot of humanities and social sciences. And this might sound more critical than it is, but I don't mean it this way. It is uh, some people have really ran with that baton to the point where people that they disagree with are labeled Nazis to the point where the term Nazi really has no meaning anymore, especially in online discourse. Um, if I had a nickel for every time I saw Godwin's law being violated online, I wouldn't be teaching in at a university, that's for sure. Um, that being said, there are a lot of dangerous people out there that are espousing dangerous ideas, but at the same time, I don't feel that someone that you disagree with from an ideological perspective is necessarily like the next Hitler or anything like that. Okay. But, And that being said, too, freedom of speech online is is a very precarious thing because... As we all know, not too long ago, Donald Trump was booted from Twitter along with a lot of other, uh, a lot of other people that fall on, on the right side of the political spectrum. And as much as I dislike the 45th president, as much as I didn't agree with many of his policies, taking his voice away is probably even more dangerous than allowing him to stay on these platforms. Because Why? Because the um, ideas need to be subjected to public scrutiny. And in light of the pandemic and other things that have been going on in the past year, <laughs> the online forum has become our, our Greek forum. And, you know, and if, if someone like Donald Trump or a Donald Trump supporter is espousing dangerous ideologies, we need to be able to examine those, especially as rhetoricians. We need to be able to look at those and say, hey, this idea is flawed, and this is why. Uh, when we silence those voices, the voices don't go away. They're just not in the public forum, and they foment in, in secretive spaces, Discord servers, uh, 
dark web, if that's even still a thing, you know, and which it is. But, um, you know, and when these ideas are allowed to become echo chambers and foment in secrecy and aren't put up to public scrutiny, these ideas can become very dangerous very quickly. And when they resurface, it might be too late to do anything about it. So how do you contend with your um, opinion about free speech on the internet and the and, and your very valid reasons, you know, about about why we shouldn't silence those voices and the, your relationship with big technology in your research? Yeah, it's really weird because you know Twitter, Facebook, what have you—they're all privately held companies, so they're they're not the government. They're able to do this, but. I think it comes down to an issue of ethics and it comes down to an issue of um, looking at the bigger picture, which CEOs are CEOs for a reason. They look at the bigger picture. They're usually put in that position because of their ability to see the long view and to think abstractly. And it seems like here lately, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Jack Dorsey's, the Jeff Bezos of the world, you know, they are not using that long view. They are, it seems like they're trying to satisfy their stockholders and their board of directors. And they're doing that by, oh, they're getting rid of all the bad, but they're not getting rid of the bad. The bad is just moving to a different place in the new aesthetic or whatever we want to call it now. And, You know, they're not going anywhere, but they're not being held up to, to public scrutiny. So I, I think it's really short-sighted of people like Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg to do these things. And But who's going to listen to a bunch of humanities scholars, you know, in the Midwest and East Coast? <laughs> Probably not too many of them. Um, so who should, who, should, who should Jeff Bezos and Jack Dorsey be working to satisfy? Well, they're they're looking to satisfy their their bank accounts, I think, and they're looking to. Who should they be working to satisfy? I think they should be working to satisfy themselves and knowing that they're providing something for the greater good. Like platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, my favorite, by the way, and even TikTok for crying out loud. The Chinese surveillance apparatus on this TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> could be used for the greater good if they really wanted to. But what does that look like and what does it mean for us and what does it mean for for their stakeholders? I don't know. I don't I don't I'm not a finance guy. Um, I, I do think in the beginning, especially Zuckerberg, that was his uh, ideal was to connect people through through this platform of his. But it has since become. Uh, something very different and I think even as the, the CEO I don't think he could stop it now if he wanted to I think they would do what Apple did to Jobs they would just fire him and continue on business as usual yeah you, let's shift gears a little bit from tech talk about somebody else Richard Spencer you mentioned earlier uh, for folks who, who, who don't know who, who is Richard Spencer and how, do, how does he fit into this Brian Gaines Research Scholarship Phenomenon. Uh, Richard Spencer uh, at one time was the president of the National Policy Institute, which is a, uh, a right, an extreme right-wing think tank. 
uh, Richard Spencer was actually aspiring to be an academic. He went to UVA, uh, then the University of Chicago, is working on a PhD at Duke, and he has a lot of very strange ideas about race and how different races should get along. He he's called for an a peaceful ethnic cleansing of the United States. Yeah, he he's just an all around bad guy. He he actually coined the term the alt right, from what I understand. So he he's a major player there. And what makes him particularly dangerous is unlike a lot of extremist crackpots that you read or hear about, he's actually very articulate and can form arguments reasonably well to the point where if you weren't trained in rhetoric that you could, one could ease or when, if one's not into critical thinking or, or, you know, being discerning in things, they would say, Hey, this guy has a point, you know, and he's been laying low for a couple of years and that, that actually scares the hell out of me because he's going to resurface. And not only does he have the intellect and the platform to to be a terrible person, he also has the means. He's, he's a very wealthy individual as well. And so I could very easily see him trying to run for public office or, you know, giving money to someone that supports his ideologies running for public office. And I could see them using uh, social media platforms or decentralized apps in order to promote their message to people. And yeah, he's just, in a lot of ways, he's one of the most dangerous men in our country, in our society. And uh, we need to know what he's thinking and what he's talking about. So he needs to be back on Twitter so we can hold him up to his hatred and his vitriol and let him know that it's not welcome in our society. Obviously a lot of folks who share um, similar, but not the same ideology of, of Richard Spencer made their presence known um, at our Capitol on January 6th. I wonder how that event, you know, now that gosh, two months, two months ago, over two months ago, there's been some time. Okay. So, um, how did the events on that day impact the way that you research and teach and all of those things? And how did it impact the way that you wanted to, the things you wanted to research going forward? Well, at first I thought the, the guy with the buffalo headdress was kind of funny. And the Jamiroquai memes were, oh, they were the best. But um, it showed me that people are hurting and it's not it's not a race thing it's not an economic thing it's not a class thing it is just people are hurting it's an up down thing it's about power it's about control it's about manipulation of people it's about keeping people divided so that the powers that be whomever they are can implement their will And to me, I just want to see where it all started and how it got to the point that it's gotten to. Because these things, they unfold slowly. They unfold in such a way that we don't really see them happening unless we have the right kind of eyes. And then once we can finally see it, 
bam, you know, it's Overton's window has opened just a little more. Things that weren't acceptable three months ago are now acceptable. It's okay to go to a rally and then some of those people at the rally go storm the Capitol building and try to hang Mike Pence. You know, I don't like Mike Pence. I think I can't think of anybody else that I'm more ideologically opposed to in my life. Yeah. But I don't want to see him murdered. You know, I don't I don't particularly care for AOC either, but I don't want to see her shot on the steps of the Capitol. You know, no one deserves that. Um, I think we could speak our our we could make our voices heard in in less uh, drastic measures. And that's another thing where technology comes in. I mean, we, we should be able to vote from our smartphones. With end-to-end encryption, we should be able to sm- vote from our smartphones with verification. Blockchain is in a good place where it is. They I was going to say, I don't. blockchain is the answer to that to me. Yeah. I'm sorry I cut you off, Brian. Oh, no, it's fine. And there, I mean, there is, there is a verified transaction. You can trace it all the way. And, you know, it is not beholden to a centralized authority, which makes it even more attractive and even more egalitarian. So... Is there going to be a violent revolution before we can get to that? I mean, I don't know. Probably. I mean, I'm not. I'm not calling for that. <laughs> but, but you know, I think if we can leverage these uh, technologies that are at our disposal for for the greater good, such as blockchain voting, where is verified? Uh, I think things like this, like the voter fraud claims, I think. This would this would answer that question once and for all. Surely it's not going to happen from this last cycle, but going forward, I I think we could we could definitely alleviate some of these uh, conspiratorial claims by by leveraging technology to our favor. What do we learn if we take a historiographic approach to like technological control and manipulation uh, when it comes to user agency? Well, I think we learn we learn where we messed up. Right. Or we learn where we could have done things better. I mean, my my advisor is known for writing historiographies. I, I was Victor Vitanza's last graduate student, and we spent a lot of time talking about the Greeks, you know, and a lot of time talking about Diogenes and Remus and the Arab influence and bringing Aristotle to the West. So I think... We have to look backwards in or, order to look forward. And if we look back and if we can trace these divergent lineages and we see where they converge, especially answering the question of, you know, the technological historiography question, then we can find out where where we could have been better and try to keep that from happening again on a much greater scale. Where are places where America's failed and where we could have done better? Oh, God. I mean, we, that would be a whole podcast. P- part two of the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. like, this, hey, if you like this, let, me, let, let me rephrase. <laughs> what are some of the instances where America has failed that you're interested in researching? I'm interested really in the, the dot-com bubble bursting in the early 2000s as a launching pad for what we have now. Uh, A lot of people don't know that just outside of the World Trade Center, 
was an area called Radio Row where a lot of uh, components for telecommunications were manufactured, sold, and traded. Uh, World Trade Center was also the global center of the telecommunications industry, and when those buildings fell, metaphorically, the telecommunications industry did as well, and then a few months later, the dot-com bubble burst, and then what was ushered in to take its place, a lot of people uh, colloquially refer to as Web 2.0, and I'm just wondering if that was by design or if it's something that just naturally evolved to the state where it is now, where we live and what Soshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism. I don't know. I mean, it's something I'm still, these are big questions I'm trying to answer. So there's no nice and tidy uh, bow to put on that. So it's, and there's a lot of dark corridors I'm walking down right now. So what have the dark, dark corridors revealed about the potential that this shift was by design for our culture? Well, I think just really from the um, just the mass surveillance, how FISA courts don't even really need warrants to surveil people anymore, and how they started using that on American citizens instead of foreign foreign. Uh, People of interest. Not that that implies that there's some American exceptionalism, but I mean, the F in FISA does stand for foreign. And, you know, when this was starting to be used on everyone, you, me, there's metadata being collected on this conversation that's being stored somewhere. Even though they say it's not, it probably is. The writings of Jacob Applebaum, who is a computer uh, researcher, who spoke to European Parliament about these very dangers, about the Five Eyes organizations, the intelligence communities of New Zealand, Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, United States, pressuring technology companies to put back doors into their services and products so that they could watch us. That's not selling you on-cloud running shoes. That's something far, far scarier and it gets thrown around a lot, but I'm just going to say it. Dystopian. It's just weird. And, you know, that is essentially the loss of agency. Because we're so integrated with our technological selves, our data doubles roam freely and are bought and sold and transcend borders and all the information known throughout the history of man and we have given up so much for these things. We have. I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's okay. You're, you what you said. You you had a fascinating thought there. I think that I want to build on. So, so you say that the that user agency is disintegrated, and so I, what I, I can parse together from what you're talk, what you're saying in our conversation, we can look at that in terms of like algorithmic processing, right? So we're users with no agency working in an algorithm working in an algorithm so the choices we aren't make it's not really our decisions it's it's a faux agency well i would even say that we are a part of the algorithm because as we know algorithms are basically instructions and we're being instructed to do something we are like the final line of that code in a in a manner of speaking we are continuously manipulated we are continuously fed Things we are continuously driven towards things 
I watched a video of Jordan Peterson on YouTube the other day. He's an interesting guy. He's a very polemic figure. Now everything is Jordan Peterson on my YouTube feed. I can't get away from the guy. And it's like, you know, these are these echo chambers and these bubbles that we find ourselves contained within. And what if I wanted to hear a dialectical exchange of Jordan Peterson's thoughts? It's much more difficult for me to do that now than it was before. So there is no agency. We are being systematically herded into camps. And one of the questions I'm trying to answer is, to what end? Polar, you know, divided people are easier to conquer. But who's who's behind who's behind this polarization? Is it our own elected government? Is it a foreign actor? I mean, I don't know. This, these are things that I'm trying to dig into, and it's basically learning how to code in order to <laughs> how to do that, among other things. So, last question. This idea of control and manipulation through technology, through digital technology, okay, so um, that's obviously something that's been studied. But how are you connecting it to today's current moment? Uh, yeah. I think it, it is one of the major driving engines, if not the driving engine, that is uh, precipitating all of this. We are... You know, if we all if we all listened to Jaron Lanier and deleted our Facebook accounts, our social media accounts right now, as the the book t- implores us to do, I think a lot of this would go away rather quickly. In terms really? of the organization, in terms oh. of the organization, yeah, uh, people will fight about anything online, but you can go out in the street and just people are neighborly, people are friendly for the most part. Um, so I think if if we could tear ourselves away from from feeding that addiction, I, I think. But you know, online technologies are also a very valuable tool, and but it's like fire, you know, it can it can build and destroy, you know, it depends on how you use it. So and I I think a lot of a lot of money and a lot of resources including time, have been put towards the destructive um, aspects of this tool here lately. No one ever accused anyone of election fraud in any election I've ever witnessed in my life. seems like that's all people were talking about even before the actual election took place. So it makes you wonder who's implementing these ideas, who's putting them out there into this this forum that we all use and why aren't we better equipped to think critically about it? Now those, those are other questions that I'm asking myself and it's because they're designed that way. They're algorithmic algorithms are anthemes as we all know. And, and just, Oh God, the, just the, the, the fallacies that are occurring in the arguments that are taking place online. It's like people like you and me, Charles, we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> that's for sure it's so hard sometimes man thanks so much for uh for chatting with me today brian i really enjoyed this conversation yeah no problem the pleasure is mine charles it's always good to hear from you and uh hopefully all this pandemic business blows over we can uh hang out at a conference again that would be excellent uh i look forward to it
hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Brian Gaines. I know I did. I think at times I actually got lost in our conversation a bit. In fact, after our conversation, I took more time to learn about blockchain technologies, and that's a lot of energy, my friends. Ultimately, Dr. Gaines really made me think, and I enjoyed hearing what he had to say. For the last 30 years, the WPA Listserv has been a place for discussions, CFPs, publications, and other information related to writing studies, rhetoric, and related fields. It's also been a place for racism and misogyny, trolling and bullying. On May 15th, the WPA Listserv will cease to exist as we know it. Many of us will rely on people like Jim Rodolfo and Tracy Gardner and Shane Wood to keep us updated on these things through venues like RetMap, Tin Girl, and Pedagog, but they can only do so much individually. And of course, there is NextGen. The big rhetorical podcast will continue to do our part. Please consider reaching out to the podcast to share your CFPs, job ads, publications, and other general discussions and ideas. Perhaps I need to get with Jim, Tracy, and Shane and develop some kind of collaborative. Honestly, I think the WPA listserv will be back in a new incarnation and probably sooner than later. But for now, it's so long. Don't forget to get your nominations in ASAP for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. The original due date for applications was May 15th, but we're going to push that back to May 31st to allow for more submissions and more time to raise funds. You can find our nonprofit information and GoFundMe information pinned to our Twitter page, at the Big Ret, or you can search the Big Rhetorical Podcast on GoFundMe. Don't forget about the second annual Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival coming in August. Remember, our podcast carnival theme is contending with misinformation in the classroom and the community. And our keynote is Dr. Renee Hobbs. You can find more information about the Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Reach out to us and leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until Season 5, always be listening rhetorically. Music for this week's podcast is brought to you by Corey Anchors, co-founder and chief creative honcho at Hey Buddy Creative Collective. Check them out on Insta at HeyBuddyCC or HeyBuddyCC.com. Liam Brocklehurst and DJ Ricard.